You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment Deepening Your Practice. It is April 8th, it's 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And tonight we're talking about compassion practice for difficult people. Um, I think it's an interesting category, difficult people, uh, depending on how you parse it. Sometimes there's this idea that uh, you just don't mesh with them. Your conditioning and their conditioning just don't uh, mesh very well. And so there's an irritation that happens, but, but there's also uh, uh, people who are harming. I mean, at, at the moment in, in our country, things are so polarized and, and we have on, <clears throat> on the one side, people who behave in a way that I, I really have a hard time reconciling. Um, it seems so completely wrong to me what, what they're doing and what they're engaged in. Um, it's easy to point to things. I mean, you know, we set up concentration camps along the border. We separated children from their their parents, and then we sold the children through private adoption agencies. Uh, the, the UN would call that genocide. And so one side is actively engaging in genocide. Of course, we live in a country where um, genocide is ordinary. I mean, the whole country itself was taken through that. We have the legacy of, of slavery, which has actually not really been resolved either. Um, <clears throat> these are these are all difficult things. Um, we live in a in a country where the economy is so unequal, and this is um, systematic. It's not uh, a happenstance. It has been uh, intentionally created through the changes in the tax code over the last 40 years. Um, When Reagan took office as president of the country, uh, the the distribution of resources, although unequal, wasn't anything like it is now. You may remember, or if you're old enough, of course, a time when you could uh, have a high school education and make enough money to afford a house and cars and uh, and uh, uh, raise children. One of the partnerships staying home. We had uh, a more robust union life in the country. All of these things have been taken apart. So when uh, the the category of difficult people comes up for me, I'm not typically thinking of people that are difficult to interact with. I'm thinking of people that engage in activities and develop strategies and put money into uh, causing harm. And and at at the same time, we talk about compassion uh, and how do you tune into and hold the space uh, of compassion, this empathetic exchange, this willingness to hold the experience of somebody else's suffering in some way to help them. 
And so maybe we can talk a little bit about <clears throat> harm and the causing of harm and of what we need to do to protect ourselves from people who are willing to engage in harm. We live in a country where we have 25% of the world's prisoners. We have barely 5% of the world's population. This is a, an, an incredible expense. Um, when we look at the origins of this, we see that 70% of the people that are, are in prison are in prison because of uh, drug violations, the prohibition of drugs, Drug, drug addiction is a mental health issue. We have criminalized the mental health issue in this country. And rather than offer treatment, we offer prison. And we spend billions of dollars to do this. So th these are not casual decisions. And it is not a small resource that we use to do this. This is very intentional in our society. <clears throat> Um, in no other uh, capacity do we use and spend so much money on programs that are a complete failure. You cannot treat drug addiction, you cannot treat mental illness by incarcerating people and just containing them. It doesn't produce uh, an outcome uh, that is about the, the uh, purpose that is stated, it doesn't stop uh, drug addiction, addiction, it doesn't stop trafficking. <clears throat> we know this from approaches that other countries have taken. If you look at the Portugal experiment, they decriminalized all drugs and made them available at a subsidized price at any pharmacy. All you had to do was register as an addict and they would be prescribed for you. And then rather than incarcerate, they, they have uh, on-demand drug treatment at no cost, addiction treatment at no cost. And what they've seen is a 58% is a drop in addiction doing that. And also the closing of almost all of the prison system in the country and taking the funds from the prison system to the treatment system and spending a fraction of what they were spending on prisons. What is the purpose then of, of this, these actions? And what you see is a, that it is a, uh, an effort on, on the, the right side of our political spectrum to uh, disenfranchise um, um, equal rights for uh, minorities and uh, also uh, for the left. Um, I'm, I like to frame this um, in talking about it as uh, those people who are interested in equality and those people who are interested in inequality. And so I find uh, most, of the most of the people who register for me as difficult are people who are actively engaged in creating an unequal society. And the people I tend to think of and align with are people that are interested in creating an equal society. 
So that's the way that I like to think about it. When Reagan took office, uh, the upper 10% of the country had 70% of the assets. The bottom 50% of the country had 20%. So if you look at the, the and, and that actually was not that unequal in comparison to other societies. 50% of the population makes do with 20% of the resources, the upper 10%, the 10%, with 70. And then the range in the middle. Doesn't add up very well, does it? When Reagan left office, so eight years later, there were 10% at 86% of the assets and it was a transfer to changing the upper tax brackets and lowering them. Uh, changing the tax brackets on um, certain kinds of investments. And then shifting the money from the bottom 50%. When we look at the country now, the bottom 50% has 12% of the assets and that money has been moved into the upper 10%. It was, a, it was actually a very well thought out strategy when you look at it. They took the money from the poorest of the poor who really have no voice or power. Uh, they took it from the working class and the middle class. They left the upper middle class alone. They're the ones who could have resisted it and concentrated the money upward. When we look at the difference between these two administrations that we have, uh, the, the Trump administration uh, gave a, a, a tax cut to uh, the already wealthy in corporations. If you maybe you saw that list of the top 50 corporations that pay zero tax on billions of dollars of income. And then this uh, infrastructure bill, which is meant to provide jobs and, and develop the country an equal amount, really. So if this is the landscape and these are the difficult people and, and they're actually engaged in, from my perspective, causing harm, how do we, with our obligation to respond in a compassionate way, respond to that? Just because their ideas are so different that they want an unequal society, And uh, we who wish to practice in the way that we do and express uh, these uh, ethical principles in how we engage the world, um, do we respond to um, the, the people that want this unequal uh, society where uh, some people really are are destitute and others live in an unbelievable opulence? That would be the question. 
how do you meet that? One way I think is also to pay attention to whether uh, people are actively harming in a way that you would need to be protective of yourself. And in some cases that's very true. How safe are you in this unequal society? And do you need to protect yourself so that you cannot be in a position to offer uh, directly compassion? I uh, often talk about compassion as a skill set. So you attune to the person, you allow an empathetic connection to, attune, to form between you. You take in the experience of their suffering and then you bring your emotional regulation skills to that suffering experience. And as it's, it flows back to them through the uh, empathetic exchange, they become uh, increasingly more regulated. It's like a uh, in-person one-on-one -on -one experience. The near enemy then is sympathy or pity. Pity has a kind of social hierarchical uh, <coughs> feel to it. You know, I'm up here, you're down there. Um, I pity you, but not hold you in that compassionate exchange or sympathy. Sometimes a sympathetic response is a better response. <clears throat> you can't actually be present Sometimes the intensity of their suffering overwhelms you and you can't hold uh, the experience without your uh, own emotional balance being disrupted and lost. And so it's better to disengage empathetically, uh, come into a sympathetic position and, and re-regulate yourself and then open again to the empathetic experience of the other. Uh, if you are as dysregulated as the other person, nobody is capable really of putting uh, or helping with that emotional balance that comes from it. Um, but then we come to this place, this interesting place in this discussion of relative compassion and ultimate compassion uh, to hold the experience of suffering of somebody who intends to cause harm through creating an unequal society because they believe that that's actually the right thing to do. For the meager drops of compassion that I can generate in myself for that experience, it's certainly not enough to hold the space for somebody else. And so then we turn to ultimate uh, compassion, which is this connecting into the the, the nature of the universe and the energies of uh, the nature of the universe. <coughs> um, I think that sometimes that can bring up this metaphysical aspect of the practice that we engage in that, that uh, you're comfortable or less comfortable with, or you uh, have experienced or not have experienced. <coughs> Uh, this uh, connecting into the this energy all around us that then flows through you and, and is able to hold the space for that. 
is it appropriate simply to decide that uh, these people are deluded and and so if they would just change your mind their mind about that then you could relate to them better it reminds me of the the, the zen story of the uh, a farmer sees a monk uh, walking uh, along the side of the river and, and uh, the monk has that, that, that stature, that sense of deep practice. And the farmer calls out to the monk and says, how do you get to the other side? And the monk calls back, you're on the other side. It's a metaphor for enlightenment. How do you uh, come into enlightenment? How do you tap into the source? How does that energy flow through you? And then you practice and open to it. Um, we talk about the mind state of compassion, this willingness to hold the suffering experience of someone else. Uh, you might uh, talk about enlightenment as the mind state of awakened awareness or enlightened awareness that you're able to identify and uh, generate so that you experience and see the world the way that it is. And in seeing that, this energy uh, flows, this ultimate compassion flows. <clears throat> there are certainly stories uh, in, uh, of the Buddha and being able to transmit this to, to somebody who was you know, harming. Yeah. And that the, the, the transmission of the Dharma uh, uh, changed them and they were able to give up the, uh, the harming activities. I guess my own sense of it is I don't really know what to do to convince somebody who is actively engaged in harming in this way uh, by supporting the, the, the power structure that creates these uh, inequities, uh, creates this harm. We're in a pandemic and we have um, since the change of administrations, a, a response that is, is much better. Um, and the impossible position that we're in, where healthcare has been politicized, and that uh, the consequences of that have been uh, the deaths of, a, of hundreds of thousands of people. That seems like harm. roll out of that maybe um, they'll reopen and then we have the situation where you know, I live in Los Angeles and and uh, forty percent of renters are behind on the rent enough that they can be evicted if the moratorium on evictions is uh, lifted without some way of addressing the the backlog of, of, of debt. This is one of the things that comes from this 
exceptional inequality. Do you know what it will be like to have 40% of the renters homeless on the street? You've been outside and, and seen the homeless encampments that are already everywhere. How intolerable that will be, but, but um, at least in the, in the neighborhood I live in. But in more affluent neighborhoods, there is no evidence of homelessness because it's kept out of there. And so <clears throat> um, the pictures are very different in terms of the resources that are available to you and how you live. I really don't want this to happen. I, I would be horrified by it if it did. But it, it, it um, triggers in me this sense of compassion, this sense of turning toward that uh, suffering, turning toward the people who are suffering and wanting something different, not a, a shutdown, a, a turning off a, a hardness and indifference. And I think that that actually is, comes from practice, the opening up bodhicitta, that awakened heart, that open heart that you practice this, uh, these meditations, this uh, compassion practice, the loving kindness practice, the sympathetic joy practice. You push into these practices to be able to see the world the way that it is, to be able to see people the way that they are and to open the heart, to be able to keep the heart open. Uh, we do this mainly because the benefit that we get from having that open heart is that the experience of being alive is so much richer, so much more meaningful. And in discovering that meaningfulness for ourselves, recognize that in other people, there is that desire for that same kind of meaningfulness. And then uh, in appreciating that experience for yourself, wanting that also for other people. But what is it that would, would cause you not to want that, not to be able to do that, not to be able to turn in toward uh, those kinds of experiences? From the attachment perspective, we might think this is a kind of dismissing response, just a completely shutting down of the, the feeling space, uh, going very cognitive and, and um, being self-centered to the point that uh, your own advantage is the only thing that uh, is concerning. But I think also for uh, secure people who <coughs> I often find have an arrogance about it, uh, about the ease uh, in which they engage in life. It's something that they've always known, always been able to do. And so it makes them in some way uh, challenged in understanding the difficulties that other people have because they don't have them and they've never had them. And the, the uh, social groups that they uh, participate in don't have them. It's easier for them. And uh, because it is easier for them, and it has always been that way, it's very hard for them to understand uh, uh, people for whom it is not easy. 
or the, a difficulty that's been there. And so they, they, dis, they um, assign intention to it. By the time you're 10 months old, you have an attachment uh, outcome. If you're, um, I'm just gonna turn this off so it's not duplicate. What could you have done in the, ten, the first 10 months of your life to have uh, organized a better uh, process of care for yourself so that you had secure functioning? I would say there's nothing that you could have done really for that to happen. Um, by the time you're three years old, that early attachment conditioning is, is formed. What could you have done as a three-year-old to get care from your caregivers that hadn't already been provided? Not so much. One of the things uh, that's an uh, uh, indicator of insecure attachment is poverty. How do we allow um, the bottom 50% of people to just have been plundered by the upper 1% or the upper 100th of a percent? If it was hard to live on 20%, what's it like to live on 12? Um, many of us, of course, um, have privilege of education and and then you had to work for that and, and the privilege of growing up outside of poverty. I think particularly in Western Dharma communities, that's mostly the case because the it's not widely supported in our culture. And so you have to have time, energy and resources in order to pursue it. And if you're, in poverty, that time, energy, and resource is not available to you, and so you are shut out of it. So this is not a condemnation of, of those of us who, who had more privilege than that, but it is a request that you turn toward this opening, uh, this willingness to see things the way that they are and to open to the compassionate experience of people. And then to go beyond that uh, pass, passive, uh, almost disengagement into a more active engagement. Um, I read in the paper today that when the pandemic ends, uh, what's right behind it, or actually what is the cause of the pandemic is climate change. And we need to be able to move to address this, that it, that it, it is here. And the consequences, the disruptions that are gonna come from it are here and that we need to uh, become adaptive or, or the, the consequences will be 
terrible. Um, David Attenborough put out a film that said, well, we need to reduce the amount of farmland by two thirds in order to stabilize the planet. This is, this is one of the things that I found recently that was the most interesting to me. Uh, India and China have 1.3, 1.4 billion people in them. The land mass is about the same as Western Europe or, the, or North America. The population of, of North America is uh, quite a bit less than that. The US is around $330 million. And so the uh, economists were looking at the nature of this. In order to have so many people, you have to be able to produce food to feed those people. Um, are the practices of, of, of generating food so different in India, China than they are here and actually, or in Western Europe? And actually the answer is yes. The diets in, in the US and North America and Europe are centered around meat. The diets in India and China are plant-based. One portion of meat takes the 70 portions of plant-based food to, to grow. And so because our, our uh, diets are, are centered around meat, we have much less food. <laughs> So our population doesn't grow as much as when there's more food. So we have the, this idea that uh, factory farming is incredibly cruel, that we actually can't create all of this pasture space to grow uh, uh, meat uh, for, for a diet. Uh, the consequences to the environment are, are gonna create a world that we can't survive in. And so we should give up meat um, but then we'll have 70 times as much food <laughs> because we've given up meat and that would tend to be something that would push the population up rather than down. What's happening with climate change and the disruptions of it are really that um, the monoculture in the, in the West uh, isn't, isn't going to be supportable anymore. And the capacity to generate the food that we've generated uh, is going to be greatly diminished because of the shift in climate. We, we have uh, monoculture means we grow the same uh, crops. They're all engineered to, to grow in a particular climate. And uh, even a variation of a few degrees makes them much more uh, or much <coughs> less productive. Uh, the, the soil maps of the Midwest with the way that we use chemical ag agriculture without actually doing soil maintenance and all the rest of it means that we've depleted the soil. With climate change, uh, the migration of the bees is affected. Uh, the opening of the flowers right now, they're, they're often out of sync where, where the, for instance, uh, what's common in California is that the uh, the cherries uh, blossom uh, a week or two ahead of the migration of the bees so that there's no pollinators there so they don't form cherries. These are the kinds of things 
that happened. The uh, crops in India and China, of course, are have the same uh, effect of temperature. And if they uh, temperature changes too much, uh, the tropical band, which is about 20% of the of the inhabited land <coughs> will become too hot. And so there's going to be a migration of people. We, we built a sort of a clown border wall. I, I call it a cloud border wall because it blew over at a high wind. It blows over at a high wind. How is it going to keep tens of millions of climate refugees from entering the country? Do you, you have an understanding of the, the volume of people that are going to have to come when climate change makes the tropics uninhabitable. It's less of a risk for us because they're going to go south more than they're, than they're going to come north. But where do a billion Indians go? Where do a billion uh, Chinese go? Uh, we already have 68 million refugees moving, what happens when it becomes a billion or two billion refugees? This is the, the uh, extent of the problem. And so this would uh, essentially call for this, this ultimate compassionate response where we really see the dilemma that, that the world has been made uh, into through these activities that we all engage in, it would be so simple really uh, to uh, stop eating meat and to uh, reforest farmland. And because the, of the abundance of food that would come from that, there wouldn't be uh, so much dislocation that uh, there would be mass famine. And so we have this individual effort where we make this choice to respond in a compassionate way to the world that we see is in so much need <coughs> through our own <coughs> action and then uh, through the support of the, the people around us so that we can collaborate in a response to this. That seems to make sense to me and seems to be clear and this is not, I have no privileged source of information. This is simply what is in the, the, the dialogue now. And then I ask you just to consider how you respond to this personally. So this is a... a, a a suggestion of engagement in, in the world, an engaged, compassionate response, and not one that is uh, <clears throat> disengaged. One of the things about Buddhist practice is uh, that you can uh, come into this place of endless reincarnation and come into this place of uh, with, uh, emptiness where actually nothing has um, relative meaning, that it's all ultimate. 
and sit in the experience of ultimate compassion and not engage the rest of us, not engage the world, not take the actions that are necessary for us to take uh, collaboratively in response to what's happening. Do you wear a mask? Right? Do you take care of the people that are around you because they're in, in your sphere to take care of, or do you feel the sense that you don't need to do that? You don't need to be responsive. You don't need to care for the world, to, to care for the people in it. I would uh, ask that you change your mind about that and then come into this place of opening to the suffering experience of us and to engage in helping the world, helping the people around you um, and not sit at home and watch 4 billion people starve to death as the consequences of um, climate change and, and feel a sense of sadness about that. So um, anyway, that's my thoughts about difficult people in the nature of the difficulty of the world that we're in. <coughs> Do everything you can, which also includes thou practicing compassion meditation. So, Go ahead and take your meditation posture. Good. Everybody all right? Any questions about the practice? Christian. So how... What does it mean to actually have compassion for a person that say you think is making the world a worse place? Well, I suppose you could start with the impact of that karma that it's, it's gonna have on them, which probably would be unpleasant. Um, You know, if they're dismissing, um, then understand the, the terrible nature of the neglect that they experience as children, that terrible suffering, and how that drives this distorted behavior in the world. They come from a place of privilege, then it's a, a kind of ignorance that causes them to act in ways that are harming. And it's coming from that you know, compassion in the Buddhist sense is narrowly focused around suffering. So you're looking intentionally for ways in which there's suffering and that that suffering is driving the behavior uh, that they're engaged in or informing the, we always talk about it in intention and action and outcome, uh, making the intention, taking the action and then uh, experiencing the outcome of that. Uh, <clears throat> If you uh, 
remember the words of our former president, former president, which was uh, never apologize, never admit you did anything wrong, right? So that was the, the source of that conundrum internally to be so fragile that uh, you can't be responsible for your own actions, even though you are in the sense that you can't escape the karma of that. Uh, we can't uh, take on other people's karma. We can't prevent them from the experience of their own karma, but we can um, travel with them. I think often the way that I experience it is that they, they need to come across the, the river to the side of uh, inten intending equality uh, unless you can tap into uh, ultimate compassion. There's no way to generate enough to be able to be that responsive. So that's what I would say. How's that? So we shouldn't shoot mind lasers to blow up the heads up of our of the people that we think are deserving. <clears throat> so here's the conundrum of that. If you engage that thought, it creates a karmic memory trace for you. Sure. Nothing happens to them. <laughs> Just let those thoughts come and go without engaging them. <laughs> so, <coughs> so that your karma isn't involved in it. Really what I think is uh, we should abandon, abandon uh, all of those institutions and develop new ones that are interested in an equal society, a just society. Because I don't know how uh, effective we are to uh, at being able to change them. So that what we should do is is create something that is really designed for that. I mean, when you look at our constitution, for instance, it's it's a document that has was meant to create an unequal society. Right? Slavery was part of it. Gigi. Um, I had a really interesting experience with that meditation where um, uh, the person, difficult person that I chose, um, I could only hold that person like in a certain uh, like spot in the lower left side. I'm a visual person. Like, I was like, we kind of just move her over, like put her in the field or something, but I could only visualize her like way over here. I couldn't bring her in. And I thought that was so interesting. I never really noticed that before. Um, and then I, of course, then I got trapped in the whole thought of like, oh, is it proprioception? Like I have only, you know, I was with this person on Zoom. I'm like, no, because when I was on Zoom, she was over here. So I, I, I didn't understand that. I just couldn't move this person visually. Just at the edge of awareness. 
so odd. Don't know either. Yeah. I stuck with it though. Good. Mm. All right. We're just about out of time. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Um, what's coming up uh, in this month, I'm doing a weekend uh, meditation and addiction retreat. I think it's on the 24th and 25th. So if, uh, if you have addiction issues or if you know someone who's uh, close to you that does, this might be useful. Um, in, uh, at the end of May, I'm gonna do a compassion day long, uh, end of May. Uh, and then in June, we have a, a virtual retreat that's coming up. Uh, I'm gonna begin a series of level ones in July. We have actually almost enough people on the waiting list for level two to start a new class. So if that might be something that's interesting to you, we could, if we could get a few more people to sign up, we could start a class in May instead of starting it in September. So we're gonna look to do that. Um, I'll do a, a meditation and attachment for relationships in August. Uh, in September, we have a level two class scheduled to start. And then in December, we're gonna do a, our year end retreat. Um, I don't know whether we'll do it uh, as an in-person retreat or a virtual retreat. Uh, it depends on how the, the state opens up. They're scheduled to open up now uh, on June 15th, but uh, we'll see whether that actually happens. Uh, fingers crossed. Um, I offer the class on a, on a Donna basis, so that means is I offer the teachings freely, but I do hope that you'll uh, support uh, myself and also the work that Metagroup is doing through a donation. There's a link to make a donation on the website or in the email that you might have received about the class. Uh, any amount is appreciated. And of course, if you're not resourced, it's a challenging time. Uh, the, our community is very happy to support the, the practice space for you. Thank you for coming and uh, we'll see you uh, next time. Bye now. <laughs>